Talk to us now and go to the TNT Radio interactive live chat room at tntradio.live. Lighting the fuse for freedom. Today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Political commentator and investigative journalist. You're with Patrick Henningsen on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right. Well, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this live broadcast. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. Great to have you with us, and a great hello to everybody in the TNT chat room. We've been away uh, from the live stream uh, Monday to Friday last week. We were traveling. We're away. Perhaps we'll talk about where we were and what we're doing uh, later in the show or some point this week. We're still processing everything. Uh, we've got a fantastic program, of course, lined up for you today. We're going to hit the ground running uh, today on Monday. Uh, we're going to be getting... Uh, the inside track from the U.S. State Department. We're here in Washington, D.C., the belly of the beast, right in the center of the beltway where it all happens. We'll be joined by State Department correspondent Sam Husseini, who is a fantastic journalist in the first hour. I'm really looking forward to that. We're going to talk about a lot of things, not just what he does there at State, uh, covering the ins and outs of what the U.S. government is doing there, but also uh, the International Court of Justice and the invocation of the Genocide Convention, which is uh, becoming not just uh, an idea at this point, uh, it may become a reality. We'll talk to Sam Husseini about that. This is extremely interesting, especially vis-a-vis what we're seeing uh, in Gaza right now. And in the second hour, we're going to be joined by uh, an extraordinary geopolitical analyst based in Belgrade, Serbia. He's American, actually, uh, but he has been covering the Ukraine conflict as good or better than anybody really out there, whether in the mainstream or the alternative media. Joaquin Flores from the New Resistance is going to join us in the second hour to talk about something I'm also keeping my eye on here, ear to the ground in D.C., meeting with some of my contacts here about what Zelensky is going to be up to uh, in his begging tour in Washington. He's going to be meeting with Joe Biden. Now it's been confirmed, uh, but also with the new Speaker of the House, uh, the Republican Speaker of the House, Johnson, here in D.C. And he seems to be looking for some cash to keep the conflict going and really what's Zelensky doing but uh you know extending his own political survival here so this is kind of a do or die uh mission for the president the much beleaguered president Zelensky so we'll be talking to Joaquin Flores in the second hour to get sort of more of an inside track on that now uh also things have shifted uh in terms of US politics right now as the situation seems to be subsiding in Ukraine, uh, and also uh, the situation in Gaza uh, with Israel and the Palestinians, as as this is just kind of slightly being pushed off the headlines, and uh, another story has has made its way back onto the headlines. And that, that is, of course, the Biden corruption story, uh, in, especially as it reg- as it's regarded in Ukraine. Now uh, you have potential impeachment. Uh, hearings. This is going to be a reality. It looks like you have Hunter Biden uh, charges coming down and maybe heavier than previously expected. Uh, So what's going on here? Uh, We also have the president, Donald Trump, who is fighting his own uh, lawfare onslaught by the Democrats. All these things are connected. And so you're starting to see a lot of noises now going to be into the primary season in just two months. Now this is the beginning of December will be in middle December this week. And then in January, that's when the race begins the 2024 presidential election. It's going to be wild and unpredictable. Nobody knows 
who's going to be running on the Democratic side. They say Biden's going to run. He might show up in the primaries just as a sort of placeholder until they get to the Democratic National Convention. We're talking about next August uh, of 2024. That's when they'll pull a switcheroo on the Democratic nominee and put somebody else in, somebody more, I don't know, younger, let's say, compass mentis. So that all those shenanigans are due to unfold. And meanwhile, is Donald Trump going to actually be able to run? Will he be on the ballot in all 50 states? Or are they going to try to use some of this lawfare that we're seeing to keep him off the ballot? And if so, what's that going to mean in terms of the GOP ticket? Um, is that going to really give sort of carte blanche? Is that going to sort of open the way for an automatic uh, Democrat win in 2024 if there's a split vote in in regards to Donald Trump, MAGA, where's MAGA going to go if their man gets railroaded? Are they going to be angry? Are they going to kick the rhinos to the curb and just stomach it and suck it up for another Biden term or Gavin Newsom term or whatever? Um, So I don't know how this is going to pan out, but it's going to be ugly, like on both sides of the ticket, or it's going to be Trump-Biden rematch. Now, how's that going to go? The poll, new poll numbers are out. It is interesting, the Wall Street Journal, giving Trump an edge over Biden on a number of different uh, polls. There's a few different uh, questions that they've asked uh, on the surveys. Um, But overall, it looks like a slight edge uh, for Donald Trump as it stands now in terms of the popularity sweepstakes, despite all the trials, the federal cases against Trump, the civil cases against Trump, all of which we've covered very well on this program, uh, thanks to Matthew Lee at Southern District in New York, our legal correspondent, who we check in on a regular basis to get updates on some of these cases. So it does look like that is not going to have a major negative impact in terms of public support where it will have an impact is if they use these lawfare cases against Trump to literally keep him off the ballot, let's say in a key swing state where these electoral votes will make a big difference in terms of the final tally. So that's what we're going to be looking at uh, this week. We'll get some more information and some updates on this. So this thing's going to move very quickly, as is the Biden corruption case. And we've got a very good line on the Biden corruption case. And uh, we've also published some uh, extremely impactful reports uh, at 21st Century Wire, some of which we've shared. We'll go deeper uh, on a lot of these stories with regards to Biden corruption in Ukraine because this directly affects the outcome of the Ukraine conflict. And part of this is connected to the reason why Zelensky's in Washington this week. So that what we're saying here is that the political destinies of both Vladimir Zelensky, Joe Biden, the Biden family, but not just that, the Obama dynasty, the Obama legacy is intricately connected to what Joe Biden did during his vice presidential tenure in Ukraine. This is when he was Obama's VP for two terms. What he got up to, the, the Biden family antics in Ukraine, Obama is tied to it. Okay, Zelensky's tied to it. So every, they all seem to be tied to the same anvil. And that could very easily be nudged over the edge 
and right to the bottom of the Potomac or whatever in terms of political legacies. This is what's at stake, folks. So this is the whole democratic establishment. This is the reputation of the U.S. government. This is the whole Ukraine project and the whole legend and mythology surrounding Zelensky and Ukraine as a bastion of democracy. And meanwhile, the Bidens are there just hoping this goes away or doesn't sort of hit home too hard. But doesn't look like that's going to happen because the evidence is, quite frankly, well, overwhelming. So that's what we'll be delving deeper into. And we've got a big report that's going to be published probably in the next 24 hours that's going to, I think, reveal a lot uh, on this. And we've got some interesting people that we're going to bring on to the program later in the week uh, regarding Biden corruption and regarding this and how it relates to the 2024 election. It's just going to be fascinating. So we're not going to let this one go. We're just getting started, actually. So we'll be breaking in a couple of minutes. I'm so excited about our guest uh, and the work of Sam Husseini as a State Department correspondent has been absolutely legendary. You're talking about some of the best clips uh, in terms of how he's been able to corner the State Department's spokesperson for the Biden administration, especially on this uh, issue of what's going on in Gaza. But uh, Sam's a great journalist, great independent uh, journalist. We're very pleased. Hopefully we'll get him uh, all settled uh, for the next segment. So we're looking forward to that. And again, I'm very much looking forward to the conversation we're going to have in hour number two with uh, geopolitical analyst extraordinaire Joaquin Flores joining us in the second hour for a look at what's going on with Ukraine because as Zelensky's here in D.C. and as that story's unfolding, things are happening very quickly in Ukraine. This kind of deterioration of the Zelensky administration right before our eyes um, and where is he going to go does he have an exit strategy? Because it looks like now the support is waning uh, for the Ukraine project. Uh, Russia's in the ascendancy militarily. Russia's also making very confident statements. It's in a position to say yay or nay uh, in terms of any serious uh, negotiations. So if they want to sort of draw the armistice line where it is right now, there is an opportunity to do that. But Russia's made some well, we'll talk about that with Joaquin in the second hour, but they've made some pretty strong statements uh, that, well, if they're not going to move now, well, Russia's going to move. Russia's going to move forward and extend their security uh, envelope, as it were. What, what, what's that going to mean? Does that mean that Russia's going to move on Mikolaev and Odessa uh, in the south and cut off sea access for the new Ukrainian rump state? Are they going to take... Kharkiv. These are both majority uh, sort of Russian enclaves in terms of Russian speaking, culturally Russian. So, you know, what's going to happen there? Does Ukraine actually have the resources to defend these uh, these areas that are quite precarious in terms of their demographics? So all of that is up for grabs, folks, and uh, it's going to get interesting. This all could happen as the U.S. 2024 election cycle goes into motion. Won't that be an interesting and entertaining multifaceted circus, uh, especially for Washington? We'll talk more about that definitely in the second hour. Right now, however, we're going to take a break with TNT 
today's news talk. I'm your host, Patrick Kenningson. When we come back, Sam Husseini from Washington, D.C. All this and more. Stay right there. CNT Radio's Joe Hoff. Just a terrible situation there, and Biden was behind it, pushing these arms, pushing billions of dollars over there. We don't know where that money went. I'll bet you money. I'll bet you a huge percent uh, went. I bet you more than 50% didn't go to the uh, to the people or to the war. Uh, it went to people's pockets, kind of like what we have in, in uh, Palestine. Uh, with the U.S. since, since well, under Biden, uh, Trump shut this down, thank God. But under Biden, Obama, they started sending billions over to uh, that part of the world. These people are, have been after Israel forever and, and uh, supported by Iran and billions of dollars going their way and uh, to help them not, you know, basically uh, create chaos in the Middle East, terrorism. And, and we saw what happened earlier this year, about a month ago, uh, the two went attack in Israel and the death and destruction, rape and kidnapping, more than 240 people kidnapped. Joe Hoft on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. When you can point me to an industry, to a platform that reaches 250 million people a month, virtually nine out of 10 Americans, that's real, that's substantive, that's important. And that reach and that touch point and that daily reinforcement, it's an amazing place to be able to communicate messages. That's massive. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. You are about to, about to hear today's news talk and the voice of freedom. That's what this country is all about. TNT Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to TNT Today's News Talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. We're still in the first hour of this live broadcast. Thank you guys for joining us. And a big thank you to our community in the TNT chat room. Haven't done live last week. We are on hiatus. Thank you guys for holding the fort during the replay sessions. I really appreciate it. But we're back here and ready to rock, ready to roll. Appreciate you guys in the community. We'll build those numbers up later in the week. And uh, But right now I want to change gears and... We are in Washington, D.C., broadcasting right now live, and uh, one of our great journalistic colleagues is also in Washington, D.C., who's been doing really amazing work, uh, and among other things, covering the uh, goings-on at the U.S. State Department, uh, and his name is Sam Hussein. He's an independent journalist. He is also based in D.C., as I said earlier, and he's joining us on the live stream right now. Sam, how are you doing? Great to be with you, Patrick. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to have you as well, Sam. And there's a couple of things I really want to talk to you about today. One of them, of course, we want to talk about the International Courts of Justice and the prospects for uh, invoking the Convention on Genocide. That's a big issue that you've been pushing seriously now for a couple of weeks, and I believe there's going to be, hopefully, uh, some interesting developments on that. We'll talk about that with you first, but Sam, for, for our listeners who aren't familiar with you and familiar with the work that you do, if you just would like to first introduce yourself, um, what you do, how you came to the position you're in right now and uh what it's like what it's like sitting in on state department briefings but uh yeah tell us this uh this story sam sure um well i mean I, i've worked with a number of uh nonprofits over the years and i've tried to pursue an independent journalistic career um as well um i'm now mostly writing on my Substack, which is husseini.substack.com um, and part of what I have done over the years, uh, but especially lately, is try to get into news conferences and ask the tough question, the sort of elephant in the room question that the most of the press corps, especially the establishment press corps, doesn't want to deal with. 
Um, so for uh, most of this last year, I've been somewhat regularly getting into the State Department uh, news conferences and asking them first uh, a series of questions about COVID origins, uh, since USAID funded uh, a lot of the dangerous lab work through EcoHealth Alliance uh, that may well have uh, caused the COVID pandemic, um, as well as other dangerous lab work. Um, it's little known. USAID funded EcoHealth Alliance even more than the more than the DoD, uh, more than the Pentagon did. Um, it's, it can be an incredibly insidious organization in a whole series of ways. Um, and um, uh, of course, since the um, uh, since the and I actually I, I should say it's taking a step back. I had an office at the press building. Um, uh, for a number of years uh, and would ask tough questions there. I think I asked the first questions about COVID origins uh, at a press briefing um, uh, with the uh, CDC um, in February of 2020. Anyway, um, so since October 7th, I've gotten into the news conferences at the um, State Department. I've tried to ask a series of questions. The main spokesperson there won't call on me, uh, Matt Miller. Um, and once or twice I've resorted to just outright hollering out questions. Um, the deputy um, called on me for uh, four consecutive days several weeks ago. Um, and, uh, you know, and that got some bounce. And I tried to ask some really tough questions about Geneva Conventions, genocide conventions, um, U.S. complicity in Israeli uh, war crimes and so on. And so the, the current current state of play right now um, at the U.S. State Department under the Biden administration, would you would you say uh, that there's a, a a fair amount of pressure um, on the State Department? And you know, would you compared to Pat and what you've observed in the past? I mean, this situation right now uh, with Israel and Palestine, it's 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 more than an elephant in the room at this point um sam yeah. and i just feel like there's a lot going on under the surface that we're not necessarily seeing in the in mainstream media and reactions and what's your feelings on just the feeling in washington on this issue well i mean a lot of state department staffers have been uh, you know clearly objecting to um the blinken biden policies um uh, there was a letter, I think, by a thousand staffers at uh, State Department, USAID, um, objecting. You've had uh, a resignation of uh, Paul, uh, this State Department official, regarding the illegality of uh, the how the uh, U.S. gets military equipment to Israel and how they uh, get, get around all the legal strictures around that. Um, um, so you've definitely had, you know, a, a, an attempted uprising of some sort. Um, but I, I think that, you know, Blinken and Biden are hell-bent on pursuing the policies that they're pursuing, um, effectively giving Israel a green light. And, you know, I mean, there might be some trappings in terms of some of their language in order to say what they need to say to keep their pseudo-coalitions, I don't know if you want to use that word, alive or some pretense. Um, but I think, you know, even before the recent uh, U.S. veto, after um, uh, the Secretary General of the U.N. invoked Article 99, um, effectively forcing a third, I believe, um, U.S. veto 
uh, at the Security Council for a ceasefire, uh, even before that happened, uh, I, I think that it's been, you know, totally evident uh, where U.S. policy actually uh, actually is. And this is, you know, a longstanding thing at the State Department, even well before my time, where you had, you know, some people at the State Department actually know something about a region. And so when you have these ideologues, whether they're the liberal interventionists or the right-wing neocons or some variety in between that, uh, you know, actually control the levers of political discourse and policy. Um, uh, so, you know, the, you know the, these people who actually know something about something will tend to object in some way, sometimes very mildly, but they know that something's wrong. Uh, they, you know, you know, given their constraints and given, you know, whether they're brave or not, um, you know, decide to you know go off in some some direction. And so, like, uh, I know that you know over the years, especially with Ukraine and Syria, uh, there's been a few journalists uh, in in the pool there at state that uh, have put, you know asked some really really tough questions. I mean, sort of Matt Lee from AP comes to mind, and some of those would end up in news clips or be sort of those gotcha gotcha clips that tend to go viral. And uh, you you've actually the clips that you know of you asking some of these types of questions also have been going viral. Um, in the last, say, couple couple of weeks, um, or since the beginning of this latest round of uh, uh, escalation hostilities with Gaza, um, so so who are the you know who are are, are there ally are there allies? Do the State Department have allies within the mainstream press, um, and they're hoping for a, a kind of more controlled conversation on this? And then I, it sounds like you're met with just outright hostility uh, because of the questions that you're asking. Um, you know, do you get a chance to compare notes with other mainstream journalists or, you know, what's your general kind of feeling of, you know, how, how they're, how everybody's relating with, with the state department on this? Um, it, it's somewhat of a complicated picture. I mean, I've had mainstream people come up to me after news conferences since the Israeli, you know, major bombing began and, you know, very quietly thank me um, for doing things that they would never <laughs> dream of doing. Um, and both, you know, uh, both Arab journalists as well as U.S. mainstream journalists. Um, um, you know, at the beginning of the uh, bombing, the um, the first news conference that was held there, uh, for the first 15 minutes, you wouldn't know that Israel had ever heard a fly. You know, it was just astonishing to me. And that's when I started just hollering out questions. Um, and um, uh, so, and then they went to uh, Saeed Arakat, uh, who's um, a uh, Palestinian journalist with Al-Quds, which is sort of PA related. So he asks some good questions within constraints. Um, I frankly have been surprised at how Matt Lee hasn't been particularly tough. I think maybe he's gotten around a little bit recently, but certainly at the beginning of the bombing campaign, he, I was shocked at how not, how he was not generally asking questions. There was one time when, um, Blinken came in and, uh, Andrea Mitchell came and both of them asked, you know, mild, but good questions about international law. Um, um, but day to day, I've been surprised at how little Matt Lee, uh, did, 
Um, Matt Miller, the main spokesperson, you know, has, as I said, been totally avoiding me. So, yeah, I guess that's complete derision. Part of the interesting dynamics at the State Department is that it's not just U.S. mainstream uh, reporters. There's some of that, but there's a lot of journalists from around the world. And a lot of these journalists sort of act as lobbyists for their various countries. So you'll have like, you know, a journalist from, you know, Pakistan or uh, I don't know, Micronesia or something, you know, you'll have journalists from these different countries basically pleading their case of their country vis-a-vis their regional rival or whatever it is, um, uh, you know, to, to ingratiate themselves fundamentally to the, the, you know, to the State Department. So it's it's a weird dynamic that way. And there are some, you know, just, you know, over the top journalists who are, you know, um, he hasn't shown up lately, but there are some people who are just diehard Christian Zionists, like, you know, demanding that the U.S. finally do something about Hamas, you know, and, you know, Matt, and, and they would, you know, the spokesperson sometimes used them and other people as like a way to cut me off on the rare occasions when they would call on me, you know, so like they would go to somebody who they would know would be eager to cut off my questioning so that they could say they took a question of mine. So they take a question, they completely dodge it, and then they try to avoid me having a follow-up. Uh, so there's that tactic employed. Um, I'll share with you one funny uh, tidbit. Uh, the first news conference after the bombing started, Matt, Max Blumenthal showed up. I think it was, it was the first time that Max Blumenthal was there. Um, and I've known Max for years, of course. And we were talking before the news conference started as to whether or not he should sit next to me. And then it dawned on me, he should sit next to me because sometimes Matt Miller, um, the spokesperson, will call on people to the left and to the right and in front of me as a sort of way of, you know, sort of mock or attempting to mock me to say, I'm not going to call on you, Sam. I'm going to call people to the left and to the right. And I was like, sit next to me, Max. Because he, because he, when we realized that he didn't know what Max Max looked like, and sure enough, um, he called on Max, and you know, I don't know if it comes off on the video, but you know, having seen it in real life, you know, it was clear that you know Miller knew that he <laughs> stepped into a trap at that point, and Max got a very good question in, um, and uh, so you know, it's it's this sort of you know, dance um, that's that's done. Um, and I'm trying to use whatever mechanisms I can to try to get questions in, but it's it, it's very much a rigged system. That's, yeah, that's interesting. So a little bit of a cooperation tag team with your uh, your, your colleagues there uh, is definitely in order. Um, so I, th- this is interesting too, because we've seen different, as, as, as the Different characters come as State Department spokesperson we've seen over the last couple of administrations. Uh, I think I remember when Jen Psaki was doing that job. I think John Kirby did that job, uh, I believe, uh, for a while. He's now White House spokesman, but under, in the under previous, Obama, I guess, under I Obama know. for a period. Yeah, yeah. And then I Marie Harf, mm-hmm. and then Marie Harf uh, under Trump, and uh, some of these other. Uh, New- I think her name was I, Newart Newland. Yeah, I was there with Newland. Um, no, Heather Newart. 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 Yeah. And so, so you got you know different characters in there, and are they? Do you, do you think they're uh, they're they're given sort of 
you know, marching orders to avoid certain journalists? I mean, is your name coming up in briefings perhaps of how they're going to handle communication strategy along with some other journalists? I mean, is, is, there, is, there, is this a strategy that, uh, that administrations do to somehow sail through these, these briefings without too much turbulence? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I genuinely don't know what their internal thinking is. I can just say that, you know, they, they you know, the main spokesperson hasn't called on me at all since the beginning of the um, bombing, bombing campaign, but the assistant did for four days, although he threatened at one point to have me leave the room when I was persistent you know, to tell me that he had that I had to leave because I was persistent about asking them what laws they said that they were saying that Israel should abide by international law, but they wouldn't specify what law. I was like, well, Israel you know, doesn't seem to abide, doesn't seem to recognize the Geneva Conventions as applying to the Palestinian territories. Do you, uh, you know, recognize the Geneva Conventions as uh, applying? And they wouldn't directly answer, which effectively was saying, no, we don't. Um, and uh, uh, I was persistent in saying, what law, what law, what law? And he threatened to kick me out of the room at that point. And I tried to continue, and then he found somebody to cut me off. Um, so, you know, I, I mean, I don't know if it's just a personal choice by the deputy spokesperson to take my questions or not, or if it's a strategy on their part saying, okay, we'll let the deputy take Sam's questions so that we can say that we're taking some of Sam's questions, but, you know, it won't scathe us too much because it's not the main spokesperson. Uh, taking them and it makes me look like a bully like I'm beating up on a you know 30 something year old person of color rather than taking on you know the main spokesperson or god forbid the actual secretary of state um I mean when when Blinken was there um you know um as I said you know you had it was the day that they released the captives um, they, they like delayed the news conference for hours and hours and hours as that as that breaking news story happened. And then finally, they decided Blinken was going to come out um, and the security entourage is in the room and the whole atmosphere changes. Andrea Mitchell shows up from NBC, big journalist married to um, former head of the Federal Reserve. Um, and she met like, and I'm like itching at the bit, you know, do I toss in a question or not? Um and so I shouted, you know, at the at they were as he was leaving, you know. So it's okay that Israel is bombing you as U.S. citizens are there. I mean, it, it's such an amazing thing that nobody's come to grips with. I mean, aside from the obvious horror, and I would argue genocide, and we can let's get to that um, against the Palestinian civilian populations. You, you have the U.S. greenlighting a bombing campaign that is, in all likelihood, killing U.S. citizens, uh, and somehow that doesn't register uh, to people. Um, so I tried to, you know, holler out a question, sort of, you know, Sam Donaldson style. Um, if people remember Sam Donaldson um, uh, when, uh, uh, at the end of that news conference. Um, yeah, so that's some of the dynamics. Yeah, I know you're you're mentioning some of the uh, the, the big personalities there, and m many have uh, have graced uh, that uh, that room as well over the years. And so this this is interesting. So we're going to get into the conversation about the the genocide convention. Before we do that, though, 
you you mentioned you know this kind of mutiny among State Department staffers over this issue, really divisive. Um, this this issue is kind of playing up a little bit in the Democrat Party base, isn't it? Because especially in the progressive wing of the base, so th- where they had this rock solid you know uh, coalition and continuity on so many different uh, issues across the board, that was that's what Biden came in on. Now you're seeing this little bit of fracturing going on with this is do you think this is a concern going into the 2024 election for the democrats this issue it could be for those that are concerned primarily with the electoral prospects of the biden administration um i mean the 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 simple thing is to think that arab americans and other uh you know and various progressives are just gonna you know not back biden go to third parties uh whatever um, because his policy has been so hideous. Um, you know, I'm of, you know, several minds as to whether or not that is much of a calculation for somebody like Biden. I mean, the, the prerogative for me is empire. Um, and the, um, you know, electoral system is kind of, you know, fits in with how to make that happen, uh, rather than, uh, Biden's primary concern, which I guess is the conventional wisdom that a politician's primary concern is his electoral prospects. Uh, I think that there are other greater concerns for a political figure like Biden um, and, um, and that that's his first prerogative of maintaining U.S. empire and U.S.-Israeli uh, relationship is central to that. Um, but yeah, it's a cruel factor yeah, no, that that sort of um, uh, you know com- complete solidarity within the party. I mean, that's that was a real hallmark of the Obama administration. I mean, you didn't have any splits on pretty much anything, and I'm I'm surprised that that's happened actually, because the Democrats have always been if if one thing that sort of defines the Democrat Party administrations is that they they are really much more together than Republicans. Um, just, just normally, and so this this is to me a bit of, of a surprise. I think this this fissure could open up, um, and the idea is that they'd want to put pressure on the administration to change tact on this. Um, so maybe this is going to happen. I think eventually, anyway, things are kind of careening out of control uh, in Gaza to the point where it's almost like. It's going to be impossible to, you know, keep Europe, some European countries from changing course on this issue um, and speaking out against Israel. And I think you're going to see more of that within the U.S. conversation as well. So I think I think this is going to shake up uh, the, the, the Democratic uh, 2024 run a little bit. So um, and even if it's a, a small deviation, you're talking about Michigan, for instance, big um, Arab American, big Muslim American population there. That's always been a key swing state in the last couple of elections. So it's not insignificant, I think, this issue. It, so what do you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, like I say, I mean, it, it, it could well be significant and you're, you're seeing some, you know, progressive, I mean, you're seeing, you know, substantial mass protests. I mean, you had Jewish Voice for Peace you know, you know, screaming ceasefire over a month ago in the Capitol. Um, but it didn't really, you know, I mean, you just had Congress vote overwhelmingly um, for this completely deranged Zionism equals anti-Semitism uh, resolution. So the political establishment seems so completely divorced um, from uh, 
you know, the, even the general U.S. public at this point on this, which I think a majority now do want a ceasefire, uh, and much more so the you know uh, progressive elements, uh, Arab American concerns, and so on and so forth. Um, I mean, they're, they're, I mean, Congress is you know in this la la land of you know uh, you know does intifada is intifada a call for genocide and. We gotta go after these Ivy League uh, presidents, um, while an actual genocide is actually—I <laughs> mean, it's just completely divorced from um, from reality. Though the West always considered itself, you know, grounded in you know empirical reality, um, whereas these lesser cultures uh, have these you know strange imaginings. But th th this sort of shows how completely devoid uh, from reality. Um, the U.S. establishment um, can be, whether or not that's going to have political consequences or whether just simply by brute force and money, they will be able to pursue their political and military ends, I, I think is a separate question. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I heard a lot of these same things around the Bush administration forcing through the Iraq war, that there would be hell to pay and da 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 And there was some price to pay, but the U.S. got its way. The, you know, Bush, Bush, Cheney and the U.S. establishment, with the help of Biden, by the way, um, got its way and ran through the invasion and did what they wanted to do. So, yeah, there probably will be political costs to pay for Netanyahu, for Biden, for Blinken. Um, but they seem hell bent on pursuing this course. So the question becomes, does any of do any of these costs actually rise to the level of stopping them? rather than will they later on pay a price. Yeah, and I noticed Jill Stein has come out, uh, the Green Party uh, candidate, She who, who showed up quite well in the uh, previous election, 2016, but she's come out um, breaking from even what to, you know other people in her party uh, taken as a position on this quite strongly uh, against uh, what's going on, what the Israelis are doing. And so she could be a potential bogey, as it were, as a third party uh, option for some Democrats uh, in this election. If she gets on the ballot, I don't know what the, the ins and outs of that are, but she's come out you know, quite vocal in the last, last week or so on this. So that's an interesting development. Yeah. I mean, I've been, um, you know, my, my political focus in terms of third parties has been, uh, I have a strategy around this called vote pact which is to try to get disenchanted, for lack of a better term, disenchanted Democrats, disenchanted Republicans to pair up and vote for a third party candidate. I mean, Jill Stein, I, I, I think she cracked 1% uh, last time she ran. I, I mean, if, if you look at the opinion polls as to what the American public want, it's so different than what they, the, the minimal support that they vote for, for third party candidates that actually reflect, reflect majoritarian and views. And I think part, a large part of the reason for that is that these third party runs since Nader, you know, during my entire life, adult life in 2000, um, that they come in from, you know, or they seem to come in from the margins, either the left or the right. And what I think is needed is an anti-establishment um, candidate. And I don't see that yet on the horizon. That that is a candidate. I mean, for example, now, um, uh, you know, the, the COVID stuff. I mean, that in the U.S. context is 
viewed as a right wing issue. I think wrongly so. Um, and uh, Palestine is regarded as a left wing issue. Again, I would question that. I think that there is an anti-establishment center that is pro civil liberties, is uh, pro peace, is um, you know against you know the, the economic machinations that emanate from Wall Street and big tech and so on. Uh, but th there has not been a meaningful campaign to give voice to that, and I think that that would be a winning campaign. That would be a campaign that draws populists and libertarians and leftists and a lot of people into an anti-establishment center that would genuinely threaten power. I, you know, I've been through enough campaigns where we have a left-wing candidate that you know raises some good issues and whatnot, but they end up at one and at, or at best, you know, two point three percent. You know that 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 is not reflective of the mass discontent that actually exists in the public. Yeah, I thought I thought RFK Jr. might have been uh, that option for this. Yeah, this round, yeah. but he, didn't, he, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think RFK Jr. not only is his position on Israel horrifically bad, but I would argue that on other things as well. I mean, he he, he I would have thought that when he ran. And I wrote several pieces about his run uh, as it was developing. He would have gone to the labs that, that are creating these deadly viruses at the University of Wisconsin, the University of North Carolina, uh, outside Equal Health Alliances, outside the NIH. You know, I thought that he would have led a barnstorming activist campaign to end this so-called gain-of-function uh, lab work, which is actually development of bioweapons agents. He didn't do any of that. Instead, he goes on tirade after tirade about Israel and he goes to the border wall, you know, talking about that. It's, it's, it's you know, I, I mean, it, I mean, we could do a whole show about what's going on in his brain. And I, I've written about this. Well, um, hold that thought. Hold that thought, Sam, because that, yeah. that, that will make a good segment in the future. But what, okay. but what we're going to do right now is take a break with the network. And when we come back, we want to get into the genocide convention. And I think it's a really important issue that you're pushing very hard right now. We're going to find out more about that on the other side. I'm Patrick Henningson, your host. We're here with guest Sam Husseini, independent journalist based in Washington, D.C. You're listening and watching in Technicolor TNT. Today's news talk. We'll be right back. With his expert analysis and opinion, this is TNT Radio's Timothy Shea. It's a truism that bears repeating, that everything the left says is either a lie or is based on a lie. Take, for example, the whopper that we need to eliminate beef cattle in order to save the planet from global warming. Even the University of California Davis knows how ridiculous this is. A report they recently issued says that laboratory-grown beef poses a 25 times greater threat to the environment than traditionally raised cattle. How can it be that we need to replace the pasture with the petri dish in light of this? Because facts don't matter to the left. They never let facts get in the way of pushing their agenda. And what is that agenda? It's control. As the godfather of globalism, Henry Kissinger said, who controls the food controls the people. That's what getting people to eat bugs is all about. That's what getting people to eat frankenmeat's all about. Control, not the environment. From MAGAinstitute.com, this is Timothy Shea for TNT Radio. Need a ride? Yeah! Driving with kids is a big responsibility. Hop in and buckle up! 
So don't sweat the small stuff. You got paint all over our paper. <laughs> Get the big stuff right instead. What does that mean? Like making sure your kids are in the correct car seat and buckled up for safer travel. That deserves a wiggly wiggly wig. To make sure your child is in the right seat for their age and size, visit NHTSA.gov slash the right seat. With a compelling perspective on global politics, this is The Patrick Henningsen Show on TNT Radio. All right, welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to TNT. Today's news talk in the final segment of the first hour of this live broadcast here on this glorious Monday, wherever you are in the world. We appreciate your listenership and your viewership, especially those of you populating our community in the TNT chat room. Guys are amazing. We're going to build those numbers up over the course of this broadcast and in the week. Appreciate you guys, our loyal listeners and viewers there and right now we're joined on the line by uh independent journalist sam husseini based in washington dc a frequents the u.s state department press uh pool there and we talked about that in the previous segment but the issue i really want to get into here and this is perhaps one of the most important issues of the day um sam you've been uh fresh i would say i share and many others share your frustration uh as to the inability to get a ceasefire in gaza to stop the killing just as a starting point how this has been so impossible is just something of a discussion on its own speaks to our point in history right now and all of that as well but you've also looked for other alternative avenues here and one of those is the icj and the genocide convention and i want you to talk about that how how the mechanism is going to work why this is uh, in your in your mind and others uh, as well, you're not alone in this this campaign for this. Why this is a more practical a practical path to improve this uh, pretty dire situation that we're all watching in horror. Go ahead, Sam. A lot of countries have tried to petition the ICC, the International Criminal Court, uh, since Israel began began its major um, onslaught onto Gaza. Um, but that that is headed by a British barrister named Khan, um, and it has a long history of being a dead end. Um, it went after Africans, and then it uh, went after Putin right away. Um, but it has not gone after any NATO. It has not gone after the U.S., and it most emphatically has not gone after Israel in any way, shape, or form, even though the Palestinians signed on to uh, the ICC in 2009 in the hopes that the ICC would begin to do something for them. Um, so I think a lot of countries are either being naive in placing their hopes in the ICC, uh, whether that's Turkey or Algeria or uh, uh, several other countries have done that, um, or that they know it's a perfunctory thing that's a dead end and is therefore a meaningless thing to do. Uh, I can't get into inside of people's heads. The other uh, alternative is the main judicial organ of the UN system, which is the International Court of Justice, the ICJ, also known as the World Court. Um, they have a much better record. Uh, they, they have, for example, issued advisory opinions that have been very critical of Israel, uh, one on the illegality of the Israeli wall, um, uh, taking up Palestinian land and dividing up Palestinian communities and so on, and they have a pending uh, advisory opinion 
um, uh, due out for early next year on the illegality of the occupation as a whole. Um, however, um, there is a an action that could be done right now. Virtually every country is a signer of the um, Genocide Convention. Um, any country virtually can invoke this against Israel and force an emergency procedure to go before the International Court of Justice. This is what was done in the case of Bosnia. Uh, the very same lawyer who did that, uh, Francis Boyle, and got a positive outcome for um, uh, Bosnia in three weeks' time, he got a cease and desist order from the International uh, Court of Justice for Yugoslavia to stop their attacks on Severnice, um in Bosnia. Um, he has been advising that this should be done immediately uh, with respect to the Palestinians. Um, but and you've had, and and I, I'm actually about to publish a piece where you have country after country, um, you know, Brazil, South Africa, um, you know, I, I think I got almost 20 countries saying Israel is conducting genocide, but none of them have invoked the relevant treaty. Now, I'm very critical of the United States, but the United States will not use the word genocide, like they famously didn't use the word genocide in regards to Rwanda, because then they would say would say that well, we would have to act if we called it a genocide. But you have all these countries saying it's a genocide, but they are not living up to their, I would argue, to their treaty obligations um, uh, to do something to try to stop genocide. The most direct thing that they can do is to invoke the Genocide Convention to sue Israel um, and to bring it before the world court in an emergency procedure. Um, this would have several ramifications. First of all, it would put tremendous pressure on the International Criminal Court, which can go after individuals, not just states. The ICJ ruling would simply be uh, Israel is guilty of genocide and it must cease and desist immediately. You know, and, they, and they'll probably say bad things about Hamas, too, whatever. Uh, the point is, they would have a finding of genocide against Israel. This would put tremendous pressure on the ICJ, ICC to finally uh, bring charges uh, against individual members of the Israeli government who have outright said, you know, we're going to cut off the water, uh, the electricity, uh, the food. You know, the, the hardest part of genocide to prove is the intent part. It's not hard to do in this case. Israeli officials have actually said that they have articulated their genocidal intent. Um, so that would be one effect of it. It would also have an effect of um, uh, uh, effectively forcing an even worse U.S. veto at the Security Council, uh, which would likely trigger the General Assembly going into overdrive in terms of uniting for peace uh, procedure, which might actually begin tomorrow in any case, but it would have been tremendously better and would be tremendously better with um, a world court opinion behind it. Um, uh, the General Assembly can attempt to assert its control over matters, um, and there are a number of concrete steps it can take. It can set up a tribunal to try individual members, as happened in the case of Yugoslavia. Um, it can uh, suspend Israel from the United Nations, 
it can admit Palestine as a full member um, of the uh, United Nations. It now only has observer status. Um, the Secretary General of the UN, who just uh, invoked Article 99, which you know effectively set the stage for the most recent U.S. veto, um, could and should immediately start using the word genocide. He has not done so. Um, so there are a number of concrete steps that could be used to dramatically uh, isolate the uh, U.S. and Israel, increasing the pressure on them by an order of magnitude. Um, and no guarantees in life, but may increase the cost to such an extent that they would actually, um, you know, back off and, and, and cease this uh, onslaught uh, sooner than they otherwise would. This is interesting, too, because a lot, a lot of people will, you know, basically disregard uh, international law. There's a lot of people in the United States will be talking along these lines, but actually, as, in fact, I heard Scott Ritter, former UN weapons inspector, talking about the supremacy clause uh, with regards to the U.S. Constitution. You know, when you ratify, when Congress ratifies an international treaty, it then becomes part of U.S. law, so they are then bound and obligated to honor whatever those provisions are. I think that applies in this case, Sam. Would you agree? Oh, yes, absolutely. The Genocide Convention just had its 75th anniversary, uh, was one of the main pillars of the post-World War II legal order, um, and the U.S. is a signatory to this. Um, the interesting footnote, the U.S., you couldn't do this procedure against the United States because they actually have a reservation on Article 9, which, uh, you know, would make it culpable to the International Court of Justice um admit you know administering its actions or it would be a legal fight to try to do that israel doesn't have a reservation on that clause um on, on article 9. so israel is completely vulnerable to having the law administered in this effect and the u.s under the supremacy clause of the constitution as you say would be bound by law um to uh, uh, abide by this now U.S. violates international law regularly, but it, this would be a major, um, you know, nail in the coffin of any pretense of, of U.S. legitimacy and legality in the way that they're conducting these things. Yeah, this this is actually a really important legal point. So a lot of people will um, obviously use this, you know, idea that uh, you know the UN is not legitimate, doesn't hold any sway over the United States and its foreign policy decisions, or uh, if it's going to act or not in accordance to international law. But in fact, it, in fact, it does. Um, and this is the same with a lot of different countries that are, you know, their their law and their foreign policy is very much calibrated with international law as they have basically ratified all of these different international agreements and treaties over the years the united states is exactly the same in that respect and so this doesn't get spoken of enough it's not just international law this is you but this is de facto u.s law as well there are obligations there as a constitutional republic those obligations are very clear, and uh, this doesn't this isn't being brought up. It's not a, it's not a popular subject for a lot of people, um, because especially people in the Republican Party that claim to be uh, constitutionalists at every given opportunity. But when it comes to this discussion, uh, they're they're very much evasive 
on this issue, Sam. But look, we, we're running out of time. The top, the top of the hour has come. Sam Husseini, I really appreciate you joining us on TNT, today's news talk this week. It's been brilliant. Hopefully we'll uh, be able to reconvene at some point in the very near future. Thank you. Thank you, Ned. Follow Sam Husseini on X, formerly known as Twitter, and also his Substack as well. We'll drop those links in the TNT chat room as well as on our Twitter feed. So listen, you guys, top of the hour news headlines coming up. We've got a whole lot more. On the other side, we're going to go deep on Ukraine with geopolitical analyst Joaquin Flores from Belgrade, Serbia. All this and more. Stick around. I'm Patrick Henningsen. We'll be right back.